Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Hired Geek Podcast, episode number 120, with Drs. Joshua Kim and Eddie Maloney, uh, frequent collaborators uh, in the space of digital learning and innovation. Uh, so we reflect on the past year of remote learning, uh, lessons learned, and look ahead to the future as well. I uh, really appreciate their uh, kind of thought-provoking uh, statements and perspectives on this space, uh, really come from a different academic lens uh, than my own. So uh, really just gave me a lot to uh, sort of sit with and uh, think about and just really uh, so grateful for their time and all that they shared. Uh, a lot of great ways to connect with them and their work and other stuff that they mentioned uh, down in the show notes as usual. Yeah. So with all of that uh, and without further ado, this is episode number 120 with Drs. Joshua Kim and Eddie Maloney. Alrighty, well, uh, we are getting underway here. Um, I'm sure uh, the names here uh, are familiar to many through their writing and uh, just kind of prominence in the digital education space. And there's certainly a lot to talk about uh, from over the past year and also looking towards the future uh, for digital education and learning and just sort of the uh, post-pandemic and kind of uh, the blended university, I think, that has been uh, being talked about a lot. Um, so yeah, a lot to dig into. I'm super excited to learn uh, more about each of our guests, but we'll start out as we always do if you both want to introduce yourselves and kind of give a brief overview of your respective professional journeys and how you got to be where you are today. And for this, we'll start with you first, Josh. Sure. Uh, Dustin, it's good to hang out with you here. So uh, Josh Kim, I'm the uh, Director of Online Programs and Strategy at Dartmouth College, and I'm a senior scholar at uh, Candles at Georgetown, and, and Eddie will say what what that is. Um, my background, I've trained a, as a sociologist and a demographer. Um, and I've made the transition to online learning maybe about 15 or 20 years ago. So I've been doing this kind of thing for a while. I'm Eddie Maloney. I'm the executive director of the Center for New Designs and Learning and Scholarship at Georgetown. Um, as Josh said, we, we take that acronym CNDLS and we call ourselves CANDLES. So you might uh, hear me refer to CANDLES throughout this. Mm -hmm. um, I've been at Georgetown for now almost 22 years uh, doing this work. I'm also a professor of English and the founding director of a, and a professor, professor in a graduate program on learning design and technology, which kind of encompasses the work that we're talking about um, this morning. Um, I was actually trained as an English professor, but um, before that I studied computer science. So kind of bringing technology and teaching together has been a passion of mine since, oh, I don't know, probably 30, 35 years. So I've been doing this for a while too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just uh, a lot of experience uh, here in the kind of virtual room uh, to uh, pull from. So I'm super excited to get into it. But I guess I'm curious, just as like a, per a personal curiosity, like, I don't know if who wants to kind of uh, jump on this, but like, how did you both kind of originally get like connected? Because I feel like you're just frequent collaborators now, just like working together on things. So like, what was sort of the initial um, kind of meeting, I guess? Oh, I'd love to hear Josh tell that story. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was kind of curious about what you were going to say, Eddie, um, about that. So I'll, I'll kind of give how I remember things. But what often happens with with uh, Eddie and me is I say one thing that that is completely wrong, and then Eddie actually remembers actually what happened. Mm. Um, so it's kind of a, a pattern that we have. So I'll get, I'll give it a shot. I I think that Eddie and I got most deeply connected that both Georgetown and Dartmouth were are still part of the edX consortium and and we've done a lot with edX over the years and we started to collaborate and work together about how 
uh, MOOCs and open online education as a lever to help transform our institutions. Although I can't swear that's where Eddie and I met. Like, I feel like we've kind of known each other for a long time. So I don't know if that's the origin story, but but it should be really good for Eddie to clarify how this actually happened. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm uh, able to provide any more detail. I, you know, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the collaboration um, through edX, uh, consortia, different kinds of meetings. Um, at the time, edX was holding these two, even three times a year. So there was a kind of frequency of, of meeting and starting to get together and talk about similar problems, challenges, opportunities. We actually met at Dartmouth probably a few years before that. Um, I was up there for a visit and um, got to, to know Josh a little bit and really appreciated his uh, passion for this work and um, you know just kind of kindred spirit on the kinds of things that we've been thinking about and working out at Georgetown. And uh, we, we didn't actually stay in touch um, after that, but um, kind of reconnected uh, through the edX partnership and started to build out some of this work. Um, I think the kind of first time we actually started talking about collaborating was um, was not at an edX consortia, though. It was probably at um, uh, an Educause event, I think. So, uh, But we actually started to think about, you know, could we actually do something together? Could we write together? Could we uh, bring folks together? And, um, and then, uh, you know, we've we've been trying to do that now for, for a number of years and a uh, pretty, pretty happy uh, partnership here that we have. Yeah, yeah. And I mean... Um... Certainly, uh, I know there's some work that you've done uh, recently over the past year uh, since there's been so much going on with uh, the shifts to remote learning and I think just the acceleration of a lot of things that were already happening in the just kind of broader uh, digital education space. So uh, we'll stay with you to start with this one, Eddie, in terms of like, um, you know, just looking at this past year as the recording of this, it's almost exactly a year since most people are kind of uh, transitioning everything at their institution. So um, what stands out to you kind of the most in terms of uh, looking back over the past year, all that's happened, obviously a big, big question, but any anything that kind of just is really salient uh, with that hindsight that you want to kind of emphasize here? So where my mind went first is just the amazing amount of work that has happened over the past year to try to keep things moving forward to try to understand where we are, to try to make sure that we're doing our best possible work in a, in a difficult situation. Um, the amount of work from, I know from my staff and from staff and faculty across Georgetown and across the country, and across the world, um, to really try to respond to this moment and keep higher education functioning, moving forward to make sure that students have um, the best possible experience under incredibly difficult circumstances. Um, and that's, you know, I think uh, maybe a second thing that is, has stood out to me is just the kind of, the, the challenge that that has presented um, to institutions that are in some cases, you know, hundreds of years old to try to carry forward um, a mission that is both steeped in tradition, but that has been evolving for all of that time as well. And um, to think about what that means now as we look forward, I think is a is a pretty um, promising moment for us to try to pay attention to. Um, and then the third thing I would say is we just learned a lot about our students and the, um, and well, I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, quite a bit this morning, but um, we've learned, learned a lot about who our students are, some of the challenges that they face, the inequities that our students experience at home um, that are often smoothed out, not eliminated, but um, smoothed out to a degree when they come to campus and it serves as a kind of um, a leveling space where people have access to similar kinds of resources and so on. Um, so seeing the work that our faculty and staff have done, um, seeing the sort of incredible um, opportunities that we have to think about where we're going and then understanding what our students have been challenged and faced with over the past year really kind of stood out to me. Josh, what do you think? Yeah, and listening to Eddie, I, I keep thinking 
wow, it's been a year, and, and what a crazy, insane year it's been. Um, it, it's it's hard to imagine what what everyone you know across the country, and you know we think about higher education ha- has gone through. I mean, I think about this in terms of my kids. I, I have a uh, my younger daughter's a, a junior in college, and my older daughter's a first year graduate student, and they like every other student is exhausted by all of this. We talked to our, um, we talked to faculty um, and, and Eddie's a, a professor at Georgetown. So we can hear from Eddie directly, but but professors are, are just burnt out. Everyone's exhausted. And as Eddie mentioned, the, the folks that work with, with faculty on educational continuity, remote learning, trying to have this experience be as be as uh, positive as possible for our, our learners. Uh, everyone's been going flat out for this past year. So I think we're all just exhausted. You know, just to put like an emphasis too from what you all are saying of just like, you know, we're it's laying bare so much and we're able to see so much more clearly, you know, the pandemic didn't create a lot of these issues that students face. It just sort of like, you know, uh, opened our eyes to them more fully. Like you really, it, it's just sort of irrefutable. And um, I think, yeah, like the idea of like coming to campus can be this equalizing force and then just realizing like, wow, it's, it's really kind of fragile in terms of just like if somebody can't come to campus and then just like all these impediments that are put in their way and just like, just certainly all the stress and just lack of predictability of what's coming next for people and just the confluence of things affecting all of us. Uh, but yeah, like the world keeps on turning and we're, we're trying to keep uh, moving forward, which it's just certainly very, very inspiring. And I know I, I keep trying to reflect and be like affirming in my own experience, just like, wow, I'm, I'm more resilient than I may have like given myself credit for. If you just said like, hey, you're going to live through like a global pandemic or whatever. I'd be like, what? No, I, I don't think I could do that. It's like, well, you know, it's, uh, you know, everybody kind of trying to do their part and keep uh, keep things going. But yeah, I mean, it just is interesting to me too i think because i I guess i I made a quick follow-up to each of you too is like the idea of like what is possible you know because i think it's like on one hand i'm always curious of like what's going to kind of stick around but at the very least it like really shows us kind of what like what we're capable of in terms of you know making these transitions or just the proliferation of digital education different tools and platforms to help uh you know better support all students so yeah, I guess really quick, Eddie, you know, we can just bounce between both of you again, the same order, but like just that idea of like seeing what's possible. If you see that as almost like, as we like, you know, get into probably, you know, the fall, uh, there'll be a little bit more semblance of normalcy, but do you think that might change dynamics in terms of people just realizing like, wow, you know, we, we could do, you know, so much more or just like, anything that we want to achieve could be maybe a little bit more within reach or just that perception of it at least. Yeah. It, it's, um, I think that's the, you know, the $20,000 question or the, $2 million question, or $2 billion question. I don't know what right, the right. is, but right now that's the, the challenge we're all, I think, trying to figure out. And um, as we look, well, maybe not all of us, but but some of us trying to think about what happens um, when we get to a kind of post-pandemic, a full post-pandemic, uh, the fall will, I imagine, will still be kind of enmeshed in some aspects of this. But over the next three, four years, when things return more toward, uh, you know, at least social, socially, a, a sense of... Um, normalcy in that space. What does that mean for higher education and how do we prepare for that? How do we think about that? And there are a lot of opportunities there. Um, I think one of the things that we've learned though over the past year and we saw coming for the past maybe 20 years, um, 30 years, is that higher education is um, 
seen as pretty fragile, but it's actually a fairly resist, resilient um, space. Um, we have certainly uh, in different places some pretty um, unhealthy financial um, institution mm-hmm. institutions that are unhealthy financially, uh, and that's you know that's a challenge, and it's certainly the financial and economic structures of most institutions are not um, incredibly strong. But um, higher ed also has this incredible resiliency that I, I, I think I liken to a kind of really strong family. Um, you know, it's, it, it may not be the case that everybody is, is you know, thriving financially um, or succeeding, but everyone kind of comes together and is able to stay together as a family, even in the worst of times. And um, I think we saw that uh, throughout most of higher ed in the past year, and we'll kind of continue to see that as well. And so the question becomes, in my mind, how do we leverage that um, those relationships? How do we leverage the strengths of higher education? How do we understand what we've all gone through? Um, and how do we think about um, what that means for us moving forward? How do we how do we build stronger institutions financially? How do we look at the lessons around teaching and learning that we've learned over the past year? How do we understand the resiliency of our students um, and um, make sure that they, that is part of the educational experience that they get going forward? How do we really fully embrace what our faculty have learned in the past year? All of our faculty have um, taken a step forward in their understanding of how to teach in a digital environment. And, and how do we make sure that we, we take not uh, advantage of, but we um, use that as we think about what kinds of changes we need to implement in higher education in order to create this kind of resilience um, space going forward that is strong in all ways, not just in this kind of um, network model that I described. How about you, Josh? I'm reflecting on what what you're thinking here, Eddie. I, I I've not heard you use that analogy of the higher edu- higher education ecosystem being like a like a family, like a resilient, strong family. So I'm I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking about that in the context of what's going on now in in New Hampshire. Um, the, the governor has proposed a, kind of a, a merger of the different state institutions, and with that, a pretty significant funding cut over the next few years. Mm. And, you know, this is kind of par for the course of of public disinvestment. So we talk a lot about online education and innovation and trying to be more student focused. And we're doing this in a context that our our public institutions and mostly our non-flagship public institutions, the ones that educate the vast majority of all students, community colleges and, and state schools, they've just been continuously starved for resources. And that's really the context that we're working in. So while I'm excited about what we're going to learn about how to make our schools better and teaching and learning better from what we've learned during this this pandemic time, I'm also completely distressed that we're not talking enough about public disinvestment. And I, I kind of think we need to, um, particularly the, the technology people and then the online learning people, we need to center our conversations much more around public policy. Josh, you're absolutely right. And, and, and certainly the concern is there. It's, it's also the case, though, that um, this disinvestment comes in part because of a distrust of higher education, right? So it's not just a financial um, reduction. It's it's really a, a kind of cultural and conceptual um, change and shift around what higher ed is for a large number of people in this country, especially. And so trying to think about how we rebuild, you know, some sense of that trust of where higher ed is, I think will be one of our challenges going forward too. So, so how do we do that, Eddie? How do we do that? <laughs> yeah, how do we build that trust? Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, well, I think, you know, it's a great question. I think one of the, th the ways we do that is we, we start to tackle head on some of the things that have led to that mistrust. We try to help people understand how to read and understand knowledge and information in ways that we've abandoned, you know, in certain, certain parts of the institutions. And we actually start to focus in on the core mission of the institutions, which is teaching and learning. And we spend a lot of time thinking more broadly about the student experience as we should. Um, higher ed is, is an experience and it's an educational experience, not just what happens in the classroom. Um, but a lot of our institutions really take the focus away from teaching and learning um, and think more about um, research or sports or a set of activities that um, only give, uh, I think, secondary attention to the things that are so important uh, to the student experience in the classroom and uh, what they imagine they're doing there for four years. If we think about where we're going. What is, uh, what is the future of this culture, of our society? What's the future of the workforce? And how do we prepare our students uh, for that future? So we start to create I think approaches to uh, helping our students prepare for that workforce, prepare for lifelong learning, prepare for an engagement with our institutions that goes beyond paying an awful lot of money for four years and then feeling disconnected, except when you're being asked to give money um, every year in a, in a you know campaign of sorts. Um, so creating a different relationship with our students, creating a different relationship with our faculty and the expectations that we have for them as teachers. Um, and then I think opening up the work that we do uh, to the larger society as a way of understanding that this is about contributing to society, not just helping individuals succeed um, locally. But, you know, who knows, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's just like, you know, a little, uh, you know, just shooting in the dark, I guess. But because, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like we keep like kind of lobbing uh, these, you know, the big, big kind of yeah, million or billion dollar questions, whatever it may be. But because um, I think. What it makes me think too, of like another thing I want to ask about of like, but maybe kind of that wrinkle of like, which I think it is just this larger existential crisis, like you're kind of both are talking about of like the that trust piece and like the value, the relevance, and like you know the utility of uh, uh, higher education and everything. And I, I wonder just again because so many students obviously were pushed into remote learning and uh, the space and everything, whether they wanted to or not. So there was a lot of kind of uh, consternation about, you know, oh, well, I'm not here. I shouldn't have to pay as much and those sort of things. So um, I'm curious because this could be a fairly straightforward question or, or not. Um, like, and we'll start with you, uh, Josh, on this one. But do you think that most of the skepticism um, that's been around like online learning uh, has washed away by this point? Because, it, it, you know, I don't think it's necessarily as loud as it was when people kind of immediately were going into remote learning. Um, and what work maybe still needs to be done if you feel like there is still um, some skepticism around online learning. So, yeah, that, that's a great question. And this is a question that Eddie and I have tried to figure out it and, and puzzle out. Um, so what we know is that over the past year, the remote learning that's that's gone on in in ways big and small that does not resemble what high quality online learning would be. A high quality online learning takes, um, the courses take lots of inputs. It, they're built with a team. They're built over time. Um, there's there's lots more asynchronous kind, kind of work. There's all these ways that these courses have been designed um, that are aligned with, with the knowledge of, of how people learn and that use good pedagogy and, and all sorts of things. Well, over the past year, Colleges and universities did not have time or the, the the depth of resources to create high quality online courses across the board. We needed to focus on academic resiliency. We needed to move to remote learning. So what we have now is we have a lot of variation. We have some some 
pretty good uh, remote learning that's going on. And then we have a lot of, of Zoom U going on where professors are just doing a lot of a lot of Zoom and mm-hmm. that's exhausting everyone. And that's not good, right? But it, it, it kept things going. So I think what Eddie and I are really trying to figure out is, okay, what, what can we take that was really good from, from this past year? And there are a lot of good things about how professors have worked with uh, teaching and learning centers and educational developers and instructional designers and really built those kind of partnerships and collaborations. A lot of good things about how um, professors and students are really much more on the same level now. You know, everyone's going through this crappy situation, has complicated home lives. So I think there's a lot more empathy and compassion and, and maybe less emphasis on high stakes testing and grading and all those kind of things. Um, how do we take that going forward? Um, what, what are the conversations we need to have on, on campus? And, you know, Eddie and I are in, in our research going forward, we're, we're trying to figure out what can and should higher education look like coming after this, this enormous, you know, disruptive event of, of the, of the pandemic. And I don't know if we have, any one answer. I think there's a lot of answers, but I think those are the questions we need to be addressing. Yeah, I think uh, I think Josh, you're right. Uh, it's um, you know certainly in the sort of description of online learning over the past year as being different than what we normally think about as online learning. Um, that that's absolutely the case. I think Zoom U as a kind of metaphor makes makes good sense. Um, you know, one of the other things that I, I think a lot about is that. It's not just that online learning was not given the kind of full um, design and development um, activities that we would normally associate with with creating a, a rich and robust online course, but that everything about um, the past year's experience for our students has been constrained. Um, so it's not just that they're taking um, online courses that were designed in some cases, you know, with with care and with love by faculty members who really um, put poured their heart and soul into trying to make a really good course, but that those students were all were taking five online courses and in some cases six or maybe even seven online courses, and so their entire experience was in the online space, and that was a constraint of some sort. Uh, of sorts. Um, they were also obviously, as we all were at home. Um, and so their, their environment was constrained significantly. Um, the world around them, you know, uh, metaphorically on fire and, and, and literally on fire in certain cases when we actually went remote a year ago. Right. So, um, their sort of sense of their relationship to the world, their relationship to their environment in which they were studying in and the courses that they were taught, they were taking all constrained, all complicated. Um, and so their experience with online learning um, because of that is filtered through this, this really, really um, opaque lens that says, you know, online is this terrible experience because of everything that's going on in online. Um, and that's going to be, I think, one of the challenges that we're going to face as we try to move forward with online, people are going to have a, a different ways of thinking about what it is, but and, and whether or not it can be successful. Um, but it's a very different experience for students when you think about taking one course or two courses um, in an online environment, and you have the, all of this other context that is supporting your learning, giving you the social engagement and so on, that we imagine will happen when our students are back on campus, or, or the world opens up enough that students can go to a library or Starbucks or somewhere to study um, and get out of that constrained space. So we're going to see a shift, I think, in our perception of online as well, when we can kind of get out of that, that full constraint. 
Yeah, I mean, and I think that makes a lot of sense because I think like the skepticism that persisted certainly was the idea that people were having a subpar experience and they didn't feel as though they should have to, you know, pay full price. And it was, yeah, like this rushed effort that was filtered through the opaque lens, as you called it and everything. Like it really wasn't because in my experience, like when somebody takes a really well done online course, it kind of just clicks and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, now I get it. Like this is what this should be like and the potential here. And it just sort of, uh, I don't know, like it just it just all makes more sense versus like, yeah, like somebody who's stressed out and not a great learning environment taking like kind of a half-baked online course and whatever. They're just like, what is this? This is like, you know, this is not what I was, you know, hoping to get out of this uh, uh, experience and everything. So, um, yeah, I think it maybe sort of the downward slope will be certainly, you know, there's been, I think, abundant feedback about uh, the quality of the transition to uh, the remote learning that happened like a year ago. And I think, maybe as things have uh, stabilized and more uh, resources being put in as that feedback is kind of filtered through. Uh, and yeah, we kind of come out the other end, we'll be able to have folks, um, you know, because I imagine there's a be more prevalence of online courses or just whole online programs and people being able to like, you know, be kind of fluid and yeah, like take a course or two while they're on campus, you know, you know, those two courses online just to be able to have that like flexibility in their schedule or something. But um yeah so i feel like yeah there's definitely a lot there in terms of like any of that skepticism that is persisting certainly from uh you know, students it's, it's a really important um, point I, if, uh, if i do say so myself i think we're we have the potential here to um really take the wrong lesson from the past year um in the, the surveys that we've done i think in the data that i've seen uh, broadly our students certainly have been having a, a difficult experience um, over the past year, and you know, some a large percentage of students are feeling like they're not getting the experience that um, you know they imagined. Uh, but when you drill down and you start to look at individual courses and what individual faculty members are doing, the student feedback is is much better. Um, and so they're kind of taking again this kind of full context experience and recognizing that that things are hard right now and uh, hard for everybody, but certainly hard for them and their expectations of where they were going and what they, they thought their first year or their third year in, in, at university was going to be. Um, but if, if we take the lesson from this past year that online is, is terrible um, and students don't want to learn online, we're really going to have missed what the students were saying, maybe not intentionally and maybe not um, clearly, but I think what they've been saying about their experience had um, students tell me that they've had their best courses um, in the past year. Uh, and it's certainly students who said they've had their worst courses in the past year. So it's not that it's um, everything has been uh, perfect, mm -hmm. but there are great opportunities here uh, for students to to do good work. And I think our students have seen that. Um, it's just the larger context is, is miserable for everybody. Well, and I guess, because uh, it makes me think just kind of a little bit of a natural segue, and we'll, we'll stay with you to start with this uh, question, Eddie, but um, kind of like what is yet to come in this space? Like the idea of, because uh, I've I listened to a lot of other podcasts that are talking about all this kind of stuff right now, of like looking ahead towards uh, the future. And I think, you know, people have kind of long posited the idea of sort of uh, post-modality or just, you know, that fluidity that allows students to just really kind of pick and choose the way that they want to take any courses and everything. Because uh, I think obviously it's more so in the way of like, if you come in as like a quote unquote online student, then you're sort of like marked that way and you know uh not only wouldn't have that ability to maybe like come to campus or something or just wouldn't be easy but um 
I don't know, anything like that, I guess, just anything that you all are thinking about in terms of like what is still yet to come in terms of, you know, the idea of transitioning back to having more people on campus and those sort of things, just anything that comes to mind. And uh, yeah, again, we'll start with you, Eddie. Uh, well, you mentioned one. I think uh, the postmodality is is certainly uh, a possibility that we'll start to see a, a lot more comfort with the idea of uh, moving fluidly between uh, kind of in person to online hybrid um, modes. Uh, I, I think that's possible. Um, I think what we have yet to see come, and and what we'll hopefully start to engage with, is a recognition that the structures that we have in place in higher education to create the systems that allow us to work with as many students as we work with um, are going to need some tweaking, are going to need to change. Uh, so you think about the thing like the credit hour and contact time, seat time, uh, those kinds of things are going to need to change as we kind of move into this new space. And we have not had the time or energy to think about um, what that means and what that looks like uh, over the past year. But I think a lot of what we saw over the past year will allow us to see those those questions or those um, those structures in a different light as we move forward. Uh, so we'll certainly, I imagine, uh, think about that differently. I think our, relation, our students' relationships to the institutions will be more complicated now. Um, where they are, their presence um, will matter, and in, in, in certainly in different kinds of ways in, resi in residential institutions anyway. Um, and that experience will be, um, will be valorized, I think, significantly, but we'll also start to see uh, different kinds of relationships, I imagine, um, especially with alums, kind of um, maybe the promise of lifelong learning will start to to bear some fruit in different kinds of ways um, as institutions try to differentiate themselves um, in this new in this new space. I do think, um, despite my you know sort of sanguine family metaphor, we will see some some institutions uh, close. We'll see some institutions merge. Uh, things will change in the landscape across um, higher ed. Uh, I think the core will stay strong. Uh, we'll need to uh, for a variety of reasons, and we'll you know hopefully stay strong because we invest the energy in to keep it strong. But um, I think we'll have that opportunity. We just, we just don't know what the the entire landscape will look like. Um, soon. So there's there's that to come as well. And then also, you know, we've now had a year uh, plus, uh, we'll get to a year plus of experience from both our faculty and our students in learning in these different kinds of ways. And so we'll start to see preferences um, come out in, in ways that are not not just about modality, but they're about intentionality and about design. How do, how do our faculty really intentionally design towards certain kinds of learning, learning experiences and what kinds of learning experiences are our students asking for that we can actually start to um, design toward institutionally and um, at the course level. And we'll start to see that play out, I think, in new ways because our faculty and our students now have this experience. Um, experience often leads to expectations. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about what a, Dustin, what a complex question you're asking here, because higher education is, is such a complex ecosystem. Um, in, in our in our book that Eddie and I wrote that came out just as the uh, pandemic was getting going, learning innovation and the future of higher education, we, we tried to think through how institutions are, are changing um, and have been changing over the past 15 20 years to to um, really take into account all that we're learning about learning science, all these new opportunities with online learning and open online learning. And so Eddie and I were kind of well primed to think about this this big shift with uh, with COVID. The, the, what I do want to 
kind of say here is that the questions you're asking are really complicated and, and need sustained scholarship. I, I think Eddie and I think of ourselves as students of higher education. And I think here it's really important what 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 Georgetown is doing and, and Eddie's leadership at Georgetown. He, he's created a space at Georgetown where scholars can come together and really work through these kind of big questions that you're asking. Um, the, the master's program that, that Eddie mentioned, the master's of, in learning design and technology, um, is a master's program at Georgetown that really centers around higher education and creates uh, graduates who are going to work in this field, who are going to create what comes next in higher education. So I, I think it's great that we have a, a university that is taking this really seriously and investing in uh, creating scholarship and creating a uh, graduates who are going to be working in what what's coming next. So one of the good things about this, I think the the work that Georgetown has done has gotten a lot more uh, recognition. Um, I think that a, a lot of awareness, and I think that's going to increase coming out of out of this pandemic. I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, I I, I deliberately and I appreciate you kind of calling it out because I guess it's like you know tough to maybe like uh, not just like you know try to give like a fully comprehensive answer for like every potential uh, potential thing that'll happen. Um, but because uh, yeah, like I kind of want to see like with this like broad question, it's like okay, how does that strike people and like what what's on their mind in particular versus like uh, almost limiting it. But you know. Yeah, I'm asking the uh, very, very uh, kind of overwhelming questions. But um, I think that it's just very well put that like with all the things that are happening, we need people to like really earnestly and thoughtfully uh, examine it and research it and uh, kind of go through the rigor of uh, understanding things in a way that aren't just like, you know, because I think it, with what you're kind of getting at too is like, the idea of like really principled learning design. But then I think there is going to always be this like temptation of the like sizzle of like these new things that are coming out. And it's like, well, we don't really like have maybe like the longitudinal understanding of like how these really uh, best support students and those sort of things. Cause I, 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 like what I'm thinking of is like uh, boot camps and stuff where I think like those have a lot of like allure because, you know, super quick kind of transactional, get students what they want, like high paying careers and all that. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe we can do that, but are we making sure that there's really uh, well done learning design and that experience and everything? And I'm sure it's, you know, hit or miss, like some probably absolutely do and others don't. And like, you know, a lot of those obviously are put up through, um, you know, external providers and stuff. So um, yeah, cause I guess something in terms of like what's still yet to come. And I appreciate also the mention of like mergers, closures, like different things like that. And these transitions with like, you know, state systems of uh, higher education is like, you know, my, you know, geeky, nerdy brain always thinks of it as like the increasing sort of like, uh, you know, baking these like institutions that have been around for so long into these like cyborgs that are like augmented by like technology where it's like, yeah, you still get the same core. It's still the same, like, you know, faculty and like curriculum and those sort of things, but they've got all these other things sort of like plugged in to help them, you know, do the best work that they can. But, um, you know, I know that there's probably a lot of, uh, folks that are, um, skeptical of that. And I know that's something that you all really have been closely examining over the past, uh, you know, a couple of years and everything. So, um, and Josh, I don't, if you want to like talk about that briefly, cause I feel like that's swirling in the air of a lot of what we're talking about, uh, right now is just sort of the, the specter of, you know, OPMs and different things, you know, just sort of like the influence that these, uh, technology companies and stuff have in the space. Sure. Uh, happy to talk about that. And thanks for that, that invitation. Um, you know, I don't think we're going to, going to, uh, 
solve the OPM issue in, in, a, in a podcast <laughs> or, or really can convince anyone. Um, but I, I think where maybe an Eddie and I can, can bring to this conversation is that we are determined to put a scholarly lens to questions of um, what happens to colleges, nonprofit colleges and universities when they partner with for-profit uh, companies in something as core as teaching and learning. Um, and, you know, and, and again, I think this kind of comes back to um, Eddie really creating with his leadership at, at Georgetown um, a, a place that we can have this uh, sustained independent scholarship over time. I mean, I mean, I know that as, as someone who has a day job uh, directing online programs and strategy here at Dartmouth College, that that you know that takes up a, a lot of time. But having it, uh, a place, a university like Georgetown, that is saying, like, we're going to bring scholars together, we're going to put resources around this, and it's going to have a long runway. This is not something that you have to kind of solve within six months or a year, but, you know, scholarship takes a long time mm-hmm. to gather the data, to figure it out, to bring in lots of perspectives. It's not kind of an overnight thing. It, it doesn't move at the pace of podcasts or <laughs> tweets or, or blog posts. You know, it, it moves at the pace of scholarship. Um, I, I think that that's a, a real gift, and, and I, I do think that the um, the OPM providers, uh, uh, Noodle included, and, and to you and um, the, the other ones should, should recognize that it's actually a really good thing to have um, people taking the, this data-driven, hypothesis-driven um, look at the relationships between uh, nonprofit institutions and for-profits. Mm-hmm. You know, I think underlying what what Josh said, um, and Josh is very generous in, in, the, in, the, in thinking about the work that we're doing that he's um, a key part of um, at Georgetown. Um, it's, uh, I, I think one of the places where I continue to come back to, and Josh and I, I, I think go back and forth on this, but probably agree on, in principle on this key point, is that colleges and universities should not be outsourcing core competencies. Um, it may be that there are things that need to happen in order to help universities develop capacity. Um, there may be places for um, certain kinds of work that institutions shouldn't be investing in. Um, that it's, it's really not a core competency for them, um, but it's something that um, is part of the, the full spectrum of delivering um, online learning programs. But there are core competencies that are involved there. And the concern that I have, and I think, um, I don't, I think Josh shares this, uh, is that um, when an institution starts to outsource those core competencies, it's hard to fully understand uh, and embrace uh, that uh, program or that uh, experience as part of the institution. Um, it's it's now kind of, as you said, Dustin, a, a cyborg of sorts. It's um, it's an amalgamation of things um, that that are really no longer fundamentally um, just the institutional. Um, or, or not just, but part of the institutional delivery of, of the teaching and learning experience. And that I find really problematic. Um, and it's not only problematic now in the kind of immediacy of that sense of the expectations of the students on what the experience is that they're getting, but it's, it's incredibly um, uh, problematic going forward and thinking about where we're going to be in 5, 10, 15 years. If you imagine that institutions who have not started to build that capacity internally um, get to a place where... For the past 10 or 15 years, they've been outsourcing everything that is now fundamental to the, to the 
to the delivery of the um, the product, the experience, the education that they promise, um, they are weak. They're you know they're not going to be resilient to to almost any challenge. Uh, the mergers that we see now, I think, will will look uh, will pale in comparison, or the the closures that we imagine will be coming will pale in comparison to that moment when institutions no longer have uh, those core comp- uh, competencies uh, within their space. So I don't know, John, if you agree mm-hmm. with that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I, I just want to make the point that that what, what Eddie's saying, and I agree about outsourcing uh, core uh, capabilities and the dangers of that, the, those conclusions that Eddie was talking about, we've developed those through our our research. We, part of our research is we talk to lots and lots and lots of schools and try to understand how they're evolving. How, and particularly, we focus on how teaching and learning is evolving. So, to to develop these ideas around the relationships between nonprofits and for profits, and how this can be done well. Like we're not saying that it's it's bad in every case. That there's there's ways that that this can be done that actually builds the core capabilities of institutions. Um, but to, to get there, it's required us to to do the, this sort of research. And um, you know, we, we want to k- kind of really always make the point that that the opinions that w- we give are not just kind of our opinions, but we're trying to, to ground our, our opinions in, in data and research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so much good stuff there. And I, I was just kind of want to like uh, sit with it for a moment. But um, as we kind of like wind down, though, I know uh, you mentioned offhand, and I'll just I'll make sure we're uh, linking out to them in the show notes. But um, you have two great works that I think are really um, uh, be good kind of homework, you know, sort of like just further engagement on this topic for folks to check out uh, the learning innovation and the future of higher education uh, book. And then what I kind of felt like was this beautiful kind of addendum or companion piece, uh, the low density university uh, book as well, um, which when I was like looking through that, like, it just feels like this really interesting artifact about like, uh, you know, just thinking again about like this past year of like, yeah, like these are the decisions about like how to open, but it's like, we're still here trying to figure out like, you know, how to open and the timing of it and the, these different things. So, um, yeah, really, really great stuff in both of those. So I guess, um, just reflecting on each of those works and everything, uh, that they both came out, you know, really recently. Um, and we'll start with you on this, Josh, but, uh, just the rewarding part of like writing these books and getting them out and just that idea. I mean, that opportunity to, uh, put forth these things that you've been, uh, researching and really like just digging deep into, because like you said, I mean, there's, there's a need for this. And I think maybe, you know, just the sort of like ongoing zeitgeist of the things that are happening, you know, like a mile a minute, it's like, well, yeah, sure. And there's value in, um, you know, sort of the, uh, slower pace of like research of like really like digging in deeper with things. So I guess just if you want to speak about just writing these books and sort of what that has meant to you. Um, and then we'll go to Eddie. Sure. Um, you know, one of the, the very rewarding things about having both of these books come out from, from Johns Hopkins press, uh, this year is that, um, lots of places, um, almost every college and university is thinking about, okay, how are things changing? Um, where should we go in the future? And, and lots of organizations, lots of uh, nonprofits and companies. So um, Eddie and I have been been uh, lucky enough, uh, fortunate enough that, that we're often asked to have these conversations now. Um, we spend a lot of time uh, spending time with 
different colleges and universities, the the um, the teaching and learning centers, the online learning units, uh, leadership from schools, and and as well as a bunch of uh, companies, and you know having having a couple books out, I think it's a good calling card, um, and it it sort of helps us have that entree into having the, these conversations, and I think it helps you know going back to being students of higher education, um, when we have these conversations, Eddie and I we we learn a great deal, and we we ask as many questions as we answer and we try to cycle that back into the, the research and the writing that we're, we're doing now and plan to do in the future. Yeah, I think um, Josh is absolutely right. Um, and so I guess one of the other things that I would, I would just say is that um, it's, it's rare to find uh, someone to work with who uh, kind of shares your sort of level of kind of ego investments. And that really kind of comes down to um, a desire to do good work, to kind of think through complex problems uh, with someone to to actually try to produce something that will have an impact that will allow for the kinds of conversations to kind of um, hopefully change that Josh was just talking about. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I think have just been great for me is to have that kind of partnership um, with Josh. He's, a, he's an incredibly generous writer um, and thinker in this space. And um, it's been really, I think, a, a gratifying and uh, experience to be able to, to do this work with someone who we don't always agree, but we disagree in really productive ways. And um, when we are pushing each other and kind of thinking through problems together, I think we, we create something that is um, stronger than, than either one of us would do alone. And, and I think that that uh, ultimately uh, has been incredibly gratifying. So make it a little bit personal about the, the impact of this work and about doing this work together. Um, but then to extend that personal, I think, to, to hire it in general, I think one of the, the kind of things that makes higher ed so resilient um, is this kind of sharing, is this um, engagement across institutions, um, uh, across disciplines, and, and Josh, in, in my case, um, to kind of think about this this problem and this possibility of this this really complex thing that we call higher education. And um, it's, it's resilient to things like disruption, and it's resilient um, even in the face of, uh, you know, incredible uh, global economic challenges. Um, because I think um, we have this culture of sharing information, this belief in uh, doing good work and, and trying to get that good work out, not um, to sell a product, but to, to actually help society, to help um, students um, and to make uh, the world better. Um, if I can you know, kind of get polyanish about this, I think we're, we're all kind of seeing that um, uh, in this moment when, when people in higher ed continue to come together to try to help each other and not to, to see this as a, a set of isolated institutions that are just trying to thrive on their own. Love the sentiment and uh, totally agree because, yeah, just like this sort of network approach because obviously like there's so many like conferences and stuff where people do show and tell to, you know, uh, share the work that they're doing to just help everybody. Um, but in the few moments that we have left, um, yeah, just speaking of that sort of like giving back, uh, helping everyone to uh, kind of work better together and everything, um, we'll certainly have ways to connect with you and the work that you all do. Uh, but any other quick resources that you'd want to share uh, that we can include in the show notes? Um, we'll start with you, Eddie, and then go to Josh. Uh, well, I would I would say it's it's always really good to, to pay attention to uh, to the, to Josh's blog. Um, Occasionally we write together, but um, he is uh, a machine and the amount of work that he produces, the thinking that he does um, in Inside Higher Ed, it's a, it's a really great space to see some of the kind of more 
um, pressing problems um, that he's been thinking about and focusing on that, um, you know, I think are, are part of the, the kind of landscape of what we're all trying to work through and pay attention to. So Inside Higher Ed is, is just a great resource in general. And, and the other blogs that are there too, really trying to tackle some of these issues that we've been talking about this morning, but thinking about um, not only the kind of local level of what happens in the classroom, but um, the, the more kind of global level of what happens at institutions and then in the ecosystem of higher ed in general. Um, there's some really great thinkers there, Steve Mintz and others who are who are trying to address some of these problems as well. So that'd be the first thing that uh, that comes to mind. Yeah, and, and I would add to that by saying everyone should read less blogs and, and more <laughs> books about the history of higher education. Uh, Eddie and I, as we're thinking about our our, our next book together, we're doing a lot of uh, historical reading, um, and and Hopkins Press has just a, a great series of books. We, we just read the, the Thalen book uh, together about the history of higher education, and and we're we're kind of on a, a reading binge. So everyone should pick up books about higher education, and then Dustin, come on your podcast to have book clubbing. There you go. I appreciate it. Yeah, because yeah, just the diverse diet of uh, you know content that anyone consumes is uh, absolutely good advice. And yeah, we'll, we'll link out to. Uh, press there uh folks can check out uh all the good books they have there um so as we wrap up though we always like to kind of just have final thoughts calls to action uh any of these things just to wrap the episode up with uh so we'll start with you josh and then go to eddie and uh yeah i'm just reflecting how much i'm enjoying this conversation and and you know to go back to what eddie was talking about with, with our partnership um this this research scholarship uh partnership that Eddie and I have developed together. It, it really is the most important thing in my professional life now. It's it's the thing that that nourishes me. It it, it informs what I do at, at, at Dartmouth College, um, and I'm so grateful that that Eddie is on the planet again. So grateful that Georgetown's created this space for scholarship about the future of higher education. And Dustin, I, I thank you for having us, bringing us to such a, a great conversation. Yeah, I would just echo, I think, uh, what Josh said. Um, very, very appreciative of the opportunity to come in and chat with you this morning, Dustin. One, I think, uh, one thing I would just kind of plug here uh, for those who are interested in this work, Josh mentioned Johns Hopkins Press. I think that's a, he's absolutely right there. They're, they're producing some great works um, from, from our colleagues from across the country and across the, the world. Um, there's some really important works that are happening in that space, and it's, it's definitely a place to go and look. I'd also just want to plug our, our graduate program. Josh mentioned it early uh, in, the, in the podcast, and it's uh, something that uh, we're, we're very proud of. We're helping students um, think through these problems that we've been talking about this morning from a variety of different perspectives. I'm thinking about instructional design, learning design, learning technologies, uh, data analytics, how we think about that challenge of higher education and where we're going. So uh, another good place to go. And um, you know, we're all in this together as we think about uh, what the future of higher education will be. And it's an opportunity to kind of come together and learn from each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you both. I mean, you, yeah, wide ranging conversation. We covered a lot of ground. That was kind of my hope. I guess, you know, just, just there's so much going on and I kind of wanted to acknowledge as much as we could and just, uh, you know, give, uh, you know, some space to as much as we could, but uh, so much good stuff to check out in the show notes as usual. Um, we'll have, again, ways to connect with you all and uh, everything that you mentioned, but um, just so much uh, great stuff that we covered. So thank you so much for your time and uh, all that you shared. Thanks, Dustin. Thanks, Dustin. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of the Higher Ed Geek podcast.